This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. Always lovely to have your company. Now, coming up later, the Australian koala. I know that the koala has global implications and it is certainly my intention before President Biden goes to the climate talks in Glasgow that I will be sending our maps of the Koala Habitat Atlas saying, if you protect these forests, you will be able to protect the koala and millions and billions of other species. And I'm hoping that will annoy our governments very much. That's Deborah Tabat, head of the Australian Koala Foundation. Her new book is called The Koala Manifesto, and she describes the role that America played historically to bolster our own conservation efforts. But first, the constitutional underpinnings of US nationhood. Well, to say that Australians are besotted by American affairs, well, <laughs> that would be an understatement, wouldn't it? Indeed, Kim Beasley, He's fond of saying more Australians are highly engaged with US politics than even Americans. <laughs> Beasley, the former Labor leader and ambassador to the United States, he's probably right, isn't he? You think about it, 2016, this is what was reported, Australian TV and radio, they gave the US election campaign double the coverage they gave our own election campaign a few months earlier. But do Australians know much about the American Revolution or the US Constitution? Remember, the US is the world's oldest constitutional republic. What does all this mean for America today? James Phillips is author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and the American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. It's published by Hamilton Books. James is also a lawyer and visiting lecturer at the University of Sydney's Law School. James, welcome to Radio National. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, many books, mainly written by American historians, they've been published about the American Revolution and the origins of the American Constitution. What's so different about yours? Well, Tom, I see the American Constitution as a key pivot in the formation of the modern world. You know, at the time that it was drafted in 1787, almost everywhere in the world was ruled by a, a monarchy, an empire or a chief, and here's a, a new constitution that adopts representative government, the sovereignty of the people, and a pluralistic society as the basis of that political of its political organization. Now, one of the things you notice when you read anything about the American Constitution and in particular the American Revolution is that Americans say they were rebelling to protect their political rights. They say that the king but also Parliament in Britain, were infringing those rights. Now, most books on the Constitution look at its origins from the point of view of the, in the context of the revolutionary period. But I ask the very important question, I think, uh, well, if they were rebelling to protect their political rights, where did their perception of their political rights come from? And I think the answer to that goes right back to the establishment of the earliest colonies, Virginia and Massachusetts, and to the English experience during the 1600s, in which the English, the English had two revolutions in that period, and the first of those revolutions, they established their own republic. It didn't last long. But all that was very important to forming 
Americans' perception of their political rights. Does all that explain why the US Constitution, at least at that period in time, the revolutionary period, uh, emphasised the checks and balances in the system? This is the three rival branches of government, the executive, the judiciary, the legislative. They hold each other in check. I mean, has that system worked well during the past 230 years or has it really just hurt efforts to uh, reform things? Well, you're right. The checks and balances were introduced because uh, Americans were so concerned about the risk of tyranny. Their initial perception for a long time had been that the, the king might act as a tyrant. But as they approached the revolutionary period, Parliament was cooperating with the king and imposing new taxes on Americans and removing their political rights as Americans perceived them. So by the time of the Constitution was to make it pretty much impossible for either the head of the executive or for the legislature to uh, trample on the political rights of Americans. And the mechanism that was devised at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 to achieve that and which the first and leading proponent was James Madison, mm -hmm. uh, was checks and balances. Now, do they make radical reform harder? They probably, probably do. But their primary purpose was to prevent tyranny arising either from an individual or from Congress or indeed a section of society. Because don't forget, from its very beginning... America was a very diverse country. You've got the sort of Puritan colonies in the, the Northeast. You've got the central states, which are more engaged in trade and beginning to get involved in manufacturing and also finance. And then the southern states, whose um, economies are based around agricultural plantations. What's the big difference, do you think, between Australia and America in this regard? I mean, when the uh, president in the United States is from, the, from one party that does not control the legislature... There's obviously constant conflict between the President and the Congress. How do you distinguish that from the Australian scene? Well, of course, the biggest difference between the Australian Constitution and the American Constitution is that we adopted the British model of having the executive chosen by Parliament. So the electoral base of our Prime Minister is, in effect, the support for his or her allies in, in Parliament. In America, the system's very different. The president's separately elected. So the president's appealing to his or her political base, members of Congress appealing to their political base. And if their political base is different, that sets the scene for a lot of conflict. Some Americans said they were afraid that uh, President Trump would become a tyrant, a fascist, uh, and that he would not leave after an election loss. In hindsight, how realistic were those fears? Well, I never thought they were realistic at the time, and I certainly don't in hindsight. I mean, that was really sort of, um, you know, hyperbole, people um, getting themselves excited about Trump for all sorts of reasons. But that was really going into um, highly improbable territory. Yes, and but the there was a siege against the Capitol on January 6th of this year. Oh, well, would you characterise it as a siege? There was a small riot involving a small number of disorganised um, people who didn't seem to have any political uh, organisation, who seemed to be, um, you know, pretty marginal people. So it wasn't anything like uh, a coup. And you've got to remember in America that not only is the constitution tyrant-proof, but the institutions that support it 
are also very robust. I mean, if you look at the first constitution of the Soviet Union, you'll see a utopian democratic constitution. You contrast that with the reality, a, a regime that murdered tens of millions of, of its own citizens. Uh, so there can be a big gap between what's written and the way it works in practice. But in the US, both the constitution and the institutions that support it are very robust. Yes, well, the American constitution establishes a system of government to empower free individuals. How did that happen in an age when most people lived under monarchs or emperors who had, had, had almost absolute power, James? Yeah, well, this is sort of why I wrote the, the book, because to me, as I said, this is a real pivot in world history. And the Americans took it to a new level. They didn't invent it. James Phillips is author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution. Let's turn to see how your thesis might affect Australia, James. Did the Declaration of Independence, 1776, this is primarily drafted and written by Thomas Jefferson, declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, etc. To what extent did that have consequences for Australia? Well, it had enormous consequences, Tom. The Declaration, coupled with in the fact of independence, had three great consequences, at least, for Australia. First, it led to the establishment of the colony in New South Wales because the British could no longer send convicts to their 13 American colonies that declared their independence. Uh, second, it facilitated Australian independence because the British became much more careful after their American experience in resisting requests from a settler colony for independence. And thirdly, it had an influence an indirect influence on the Australian Constitution because it led to the American Constitution and the structure of the Australian Constitution draws heavily from the American model. But there's a difference between the American experience and our experience, right? I mean, the Americans fought for their independence, whereas essentially the British fed us our independence, right? Yes, this is one of the reasons that America has invested heavily in teaching about and even developing mythologies about the Constitution and Australia hasn't. Well, let's bring this to today. America is usually renowned for its optimism and can-do spirit, as you well know. Yet it's also true that it's been consumed by self-doubt, a crisis of confidence, a toxic political polarisation that goes beyond Democrats and Republicans. Do you think that President Biden, or anyone for that matter, can unite the American people? Can they restore faith in their future? Um, Americans will find their, a, a way through their current problems, but the current problems are quite profound. You have very different ways of seeing the world, different belief systems, different views on the role of government, quite deeply embedded in different parts of American society. So no, I don't think Biden's going to uh, change that. And I think it's going to take quite a while to uh, resolve that in some way. And this comes at a time when a lot of Americans have doubts about their nation's past. I mean, a Fox News poll just last year, it found an astonishing share of Americans under the age of 30. They think America's founders, they're better described as villains than heroes. That's 39%. So given all of this, given the rising tide of cancel culture, woke society, culminating in this erosion of a unifying national narrative, and that's really what the Constitution and the Republic are about, can America keep its republic? Uh, well, I think, that, I think they'll find a way of working through. I mean, one of the things about the American Constitution is it's supposed to not overly empower one segment of society. And somehow they'll find a way through their current problems. Dr. Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, after the Constitutional Convention in 1787, 
He said that we have a republic if you can keep it. James, great to have you on Radio National. Thanks, Tom. That's James Phillips. He's a Sydney-based lawyer and author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Some of the sounds of the disastrous bushfires that took place over the end of 2019 and the start of 2020. Now, the result of those fires was a devastating loss of lives, houses, land, livelihoods. It was also reported at that time that an estimated one billion animals were killed or displaced by the bushfires. Since then, a World Wildlife Fund report this was in August last year, that revealed that the number is almost three times higher than first thought. Now think about that. 143 million mammals, 2.64 billion reptiles, 180 million birds and 51 million frogs. Three billion animals. Extraordinary. Now thousands of pictures of the Australian bushfires were beamed around the world during that time. But there was a particular image that struck a chord globally. That was the image of a koala clinging to its rescuer, its face and body singed, and its home burnt to the ground. Now, that image must have been particularly soul-destroying to my guest today. Deborah Tabat has devoted decades to the survival of the Australian koala. She's chair of the Australian Koala Foundation and author of a new book called The Koala Manifesto. Deborah. Thank you for joining me on Between the Lines. Thank you so much for having me. Now, title of your book, you've joined the other historic rebels who wrote about their radical ideas on how to change the world, Karl Marx, Che Guevara. What's behind the Koala Manifesto? Well, um, if you look closely, um, Tom, at the image on the front page of the koala, on the, on the cover of the manifesto, we did actually superimpose a koala on a branch over the top of Che Guevara and his gun. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, because, look, after 33 years, I'm so sick of it. And so people were encouraging me not to use that word, but I do think that the Ten Commandments, for want of a better word, in the book are the manifesto for the survival of the koala, but more so for the forests of Australia and also the river systems of Australia. So, yeah, I'm happy to wear that, and mm. I do want to be that radical in a way because I think it would be doing a disservice to the young conservationists if you don't show them what they're up against. Well, you've led the foundation, the Australia Koala Foundation, for more than three decades. I think it's 33 years. Yes. Uh, what was life like for koalas when you started back then compared with now? Well, I honestly, you know, when I got the job, I was just told to raise $5 million so that we could fund research at universities. And mm. Raising money for koalas is pretty simple. I went to Westpac and Qantas and Ken Doan and they all were very generous. And at that time, everyone thought that it was chlamydia. But it came and, – and, and chlamydia now, of course, is uh, is shockingly high levels because you get sick when you don't have trees or food. So it's logical. But chlamydia has been with them for millennia. It became obvious to me that it was all about habitat. And then it was really obvious to me that it was about um, who owned those habitats and whether they were prepared to protect them. And by and large, they're not. Now, you say in the book, Deborah, that you believe wholeheartedly that the koala is probably the only animal that can inspire not just local, 
but global change. They're your words. Why? Yes, they are. They are. Well, I dream of a Koala Protection Act because I think all laws in Australia are completely inadequate to protect the environment, and I know that to be true. I also believe that international laws that are supposed to protect the environment and animals are also inadequate. And I dream of legislation called Crimes Against Creatures Great and Small in The Hague that will bring everyone to account for every species. And the only species that I think can pull that off is the koala because it doesn't hurt anyone, doesn't eat you, doesn't trample your crops just sits there looking fabulous and brings billions of dollars of tourism. But Deborah, have we missed an opportunity here? If you go back uh, to the end of 2019, early 2020, the eyes of the world were on Australia, our bushfires, then the pandemic hit. It was hardly avoidable, but did we miss an opportunity on the global stage to make real changes for wildlife everywhere? I absolutely believe we lost the opportunity. And uh, Minister Susan Lay, the Environment Minister, and she's the 14th environment minister that I've had to deal with over my tenure, had pretty much everyone that was necessary in a room at a round table in February just prior to COVID. Now, she could have had a blueprint for recovery of this species and the protection of forests, but all she's done is just continually put Band-Aid on things because no one really wants to deal with will we protect landscapes that are privately owned? And I think the politics in New South Wales of recent times are all about, can I knock down koala habitats that are on my private land? And that's why I'm dedicated to new laws. We as a nation are going to have to protect all biodiversity of our country if we are to long-term survive both climate change, pandemics, and, uh, and keep our water systems healthy and clean, not to mention the koalas and, and those tragic figures that you said at the beginning. My guest is Deborah Tabat. She's chair of the Australian Koala Foundation, and we're talking about her new book, The Koala Manifesto. Deborah, in your book, you say, I want to paint a picture for you of what koala habitats might look like if we as a global community decide that we want the koala to be safe forever. Question here is, what's that picture? Oh, well, that picture is some of the forests that I've been in, you know, in my career. And so when I first started going with the scientists into the bush, I remember being in the Pilliga Scrub, which is west of Coonabarabran, and you want to sing Walsing Matilda. I mean, it's just magic. And imagine what our country looked like at White Settlement. If you look at the pre-clearing maps, which we have on our website, our country was just unbelievably majestic, as was America. And in America, I think there's only 5% of the redwoods left. And in our country, there's only 20% of the koala forest left. So look at the damage we've done. We cannot cut down one more tree. We have to find other ways of being. One of the intriguing things I found about your book, Deborah, is uh, you mentioned that in 1929, President uh, Herbert Hoover, uh, yep. who presided over the Great Depression, uh, or at least the, the collapse of Wall Street, uh, he stopped the importation of koalas and wombat skins after taking the view that both species were at risk. Yes, look, he was a godsend. And we, we, when I give my talks in America, they say, well, it was the only thing you did, um, you know, because they, <laughs> they, they think he was a bit of a dill. Um, he but, was a one-term president, but go on, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, look, between 1890 and 1927, we have the manifest of 8 million skins that went to New York and London alone. I, I truly believe that at least twice that was shot, maybe even more, which would suggest that koalas were in absolute abundance during that time. And so imagine what our forests would look like if those were there. And sometimes when I go into some of the Victorian forests, I actually think that's what it was like. If you look at um, May Gibbs's paintings, for instance, you can often see, you know, she's got two little koalas huddled together. I've only ever seen that once in my whole career, and that was in a Victorian forest. I just think if you look at the historical paintings, especially May Gibbs, she was painting the bush as it was. I think that we as Australians have forgotten some of that majesty. I want the people who read my book mm. and Australians to really think, can we return this landscape to what it was? And I truly believe you can. Now, we're talking about Herbert Hoover, President of the United States from 29 to 33. He had been, little known fact, a mining engineer in Western Australia in the mid to late 1890s. So he may have fallen under the spell of the koalas like everyone else, Deborah. <laughs> well, he did. I mean, that's the thing. Isn't it interesting? He did. And, and this is the power of them, Tom. And that's why I'm convinced you know, there are people who are championing concepts of ecocide, which is the equivalent of genocide. But those those laws are not getting up because industry has so much heat against it. But who could ever object to a law that says creatures great and small? Otherwise, you can have a dictator that comes into Africa and say, right, I'm going to go and blow away all the cheetahs or the elephants. We have to have international laws. And I'm convinced that I will be taken seriously over time to start championing those thoughts. Okay. Now, the year 2000 uh, was another yep. significant year for the American protection of the koala. You spent time in Washington around this time. Tell us what happened. Well, in 1998, the Koala Habitat Atlas, our signature project for mapping habitats, received a Computer World Smithsonian Award. And so I was in Washington because I was asked to be a judge for those awards for the next two. And so while I was there, I got to sort of go to Capitol Hill and see the lobbyists. And another group had actually nominated the koala for listing under the Endangered Species Act of the United States because they believed that they had a, a universal role or global role in protecting species. And so that did actually happen. And I did spend a lot of time at the United States US Fish and Wildlife Service lobbying and providing information from our maps, which actually got it up. Now, at the time, that was Clinton and Gore, and they were trying to convince the Australian government that we had to meet Kyoto protocols. We were chastised. You are clearing second only to the Amazon. We have to stop cutting our trees down. And so I could waffle on forever about this, but I know that the koala has global implications and it is certainly my intention before President Biden and Envoy Kerry goes to the climate talks in Glasgow that I will be sending our maps of the Koala Habitat Atlas, which we have spent 23 years and about $20 million creating, saying, if you protect these forests, you will reduce our emissions you will be able to protect the koala and millions and billions of other species that are in 20% of our continent. And I'm hoping that will annoy our governments very much. Before we let you go, Deborah, what did you include in your Koala Protection Act? 
Well, look, Violet Protection Act is terribly simple, and I modelled it on the Bald Eagle Act. The Bald Eagle Act initially was just one piece of paper which said you cannot touch its trees and you cannot touch its habitat. And so our document is a little stronger than that, but it basically says if a koala tree is on any given landscape, the application is automatically no unless you, the proponent, can prove that your activity is benign. Because the current laws basically say, yep, no worries, mate, you can do whatever you like and you, the community, have to fight to the death to prove that we're being destructive. And so this would change the bonus of proof to the proponent, not to the community. And as I write in the manifesto, I am so tired of seeing weary and exhausted communities having to fight for their landscapes, either for food production or the protection of their waterways or the protection of species like the koalas. And let me tell you, I have had the most amazing life over 33 years going to some of those communities because they always say, you know, let's save the koala because of its iconic power. And I have seen so much of Australia and I've seen so much of it destroyed. Well, good on you, Deborah. Thanks so much for joining me on Between the Lines. Thanks for having me. Deborah Tabart is chair of the Australian Koala Foundation and author of a new book called The Koala Manifesto, and we'll put a link to the book on our website. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Finally, allow me to pay tribute to a leading Australian historian, Professor Neville Maney. He taught both Australian and American history at the University of Sydney from 1962 to 2006. He died recently at age 88. Now, many of you may not be aware of Neville. He was extremely modest and he shied away from the media limelight. Yet he was one of our nation's most eminent diplomatic historians. Dennis Richardson, the former head of foreign relations and the defence departments. Indigenous leader, Noel Pearson. Former ABC journalist, Eleanor Hall all past students. They would be among many distinguished Australians who would vouch for Neville Maney's intellectual genius. Neville was the first Australian historian to be awarded an American PhD. That was in the late 1950s. He was the author of several groundbreaking books that challenged orthodoxies about Australian national security in the first half of the 20th century. Neville, who strongly opposed both wars in Vietnam and Iraq, he also had some novel insights into how Americans saw themselves as a special people who had a special mission to redeem the world. Neville's favourite music included the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which celebrated Abraham Lincoln's crusade to end the American Civil War of the 1860s. Now, Neville was such a great lecturer and tutor, many students kept in close touch with him long after he taught us, and I was lucky to be one of them. We met 30 years ago. It was early June 1991. He was 58 and I was only 19. He was teaching an undergraduate course on American history at the University of Sydney. Like so many students, I immediately embraced his wit, intellect and generosity. A couple of years later, he supervised my fourth year honours thesis, happened to be on Nixon's changing attitudes towards communist China in the mid to late 60s. Neville was a mentor and friend to so many students. He was as elegant and measured a conversationalist 
as writer and lecturer. He cherished a huge appetite for discussion of the big things, big and bold theses, the state of the nation and the world, and questions surrounding nationalism, foreign relations, and their relation to broad intellectual movements. He had a profound impact on our intellectual and personal development. My friend James Curran, another student who these days teaches modern history at the University of Sydney, he's written a terrific tribute to Neville in this week's Australian Financial Review, and we'll put a link to it on our homepage. Farewell, Neville Maney. Well, that's it for the show. And if you'd like to hear this or other episodes, including last week's interview with the leading historian, Neil Ferguson, on the lessons to be drawn from the COVID crisis, just go to abc.net.au and follow the prompts to Between the Lines, or just go to the ABC Listen app, where you can download us for free or wherever you download your shows online. This is Tom Switzer, and thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.